to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here are your two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. My name is Trey Lawson, and, uh... So, did you know there was an episode of One Tree Hill where a dog eats a heart? Go on. Well, like, I've never seen the show before, but apparently there's an episode of One Tree Hill where, like, a heart is being transported for a heart transplant, a nurse trips, and a dog eats the heart. That is incredibly gruesome and morbid. Apparently it's funny because the heart was meant for the main villain in the show. Uh-huh. And, like, I'm half tempted now to just watch all of One Tree Hill so I have context for this scene. That, um, does not sound like a thing I want to do. Uh, well, you know, uh, I have the remote, so... E- even even if it is the CW's fourth longest-running series after Smallville, Seventh Heaven, and Supernatural. See, I only know One Tree Hill because we used to watch this thing called Channel One News mm-hmm. in high school, and there are commercials in Channel One News. And, it, like, every time there would be a commercial for One Tree Hill when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. But, of course, and then I showed Channel One to my students when I became a teacher, but, of course, I had ad block around there, so I have no idea what they were showing ads for. <laughs> and now Channel One isn't, Channel One isn't a thing anymore. Right. Although, apparently, during the mid-90s, uh, Anderson Cooper was a reporter for Channel 1 News. That's fascinating. It really is. And his uh, hair wasn't white yet. Right, right. Also, apparently, the creator and head writer of One Tree Hill is also the series creator of The Royals for E. Oh, I have no idea what that is. No, uh, it was like a... TV soap opera about a fictional version of the British royal family. Why do you need that when you have the actual <laughs> royal family providing, <laughs> providing much needed? Well, I don't know be, about much to needed. To be fair, to be fair, this show got canceled in 2017, which is around the time the actual real life soap opera started to ramp up again. Oh, leave Harry and Meghan alone. Amen. And carry on. But yeah, so so. Good to know. Um, One Tree Hill. Uh, Dog eats a heart. um, Presumably develops a taste for human blood. (laughs) He's the the big baddie in this series. They've got to fight him together. That's how you get your Buffy crossover. Yeah, uh, or or Supernatural crossover. Let's be honest with that, too. This is very true. For that era of CW, yes, Supernatural. Yeah, yeah. Is Supernatural still on the air? This is the final season, right? They are in their final season. Um, you know, I only ever have caught, like, the ends of episodes, because it used to come on right before one of the CW superhero shows. Yeah. Or maybe it came on after, and I caught the beginning. I only caught bits and pieces of episodes because it ran into the superhero stuff. So, like, after Supernatural goes off the air, will it just be comic book adaptations? Because you've got Riverdale, you've got, um, well, Arrow has has ended, um, but you've got Supergirl... Right. You've there, got there's the, Star... there's the there's the Arrow spinoff, which may happen. Wow, really? Okay. Um, yeah. Um, then you've got the uh, Green Arrow and the Black Canaries, or Green Arrow and the Canaries, something like that. But I was thought that. Never mind. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, um. And no, I won't get into spoilers right now. But 
they're kind of impossible to avoid in the community. <laughs> uh, but then, of course, we've got Flash, we've got Supergirl, we've got Stargirl, we've got Legends of Tomorrow. That's still going, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, although, uh, Brandon Routh has left... Well, Brandon Routh was removed from the series, and he was not happy with the circumstances. Oh, that's not good. Which also means that his wife was removed from the series, because they were both series regulars as of the last season. Ooh, that's really not good. So. And then, of course, we've got the Lois and Clark reboot. That's what I'm calling it. I don't care what they tell me otherwise. It's Superman and Lois. Uh, it's Lois and Clark. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> well, I think they're. I think they're making a conscious rhetorical decision that there is a difference between a show that's about Lois and Clark and a show that is about Superman and Lois. Yes, but okay. Let's get into that real quick because Clark Kent's the real person. Well, they're both the real person. I mean, Superman is Clark Kent. Well, right. But Bruce Wayne is Batman. I mean, actually, that's not true because. I'm Batman. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I've always hesitated to, like, divide up the Superman personality the way that some people want to, where there's, like, like there is Clark, there is Superman, there is um, Kal-El, and they're all sort of distinct personalities or whatever. I don't know. I Each of them are a part of who he is. It's just a matter of... I mean, it's, it's sort of superhero code switching. Yeah. But now it's time for Hellstrom Watch. So, um, yes, Hellstrom Watch. So, first yeah. things first. Or, or, is this just what we're gonna do for the rest of the episode? Maybe. I think I'm stuck like this. <laughs> well, you have fun with your summary then. Oh God. <laughs> but for Hellstrom Watch, first things first. Not only is Hellstrom still happening, but we have seen photographic evidence that Hellstrom is happening. You will believe a man can stare through a shop window. Yeah, these are really boring set photos, and they really just show the series star Tom Austin, like, looking in a shop window. Yep. But the other photo does show the uh, the production slate that they use to, to uh, you know, sync the sound or whatever. And it, it does show the working title Omens, which is what they were filming under so that people didn't swarm the location trying to get a glimpse of a Marvel show. They're making a Hellstrom series? Come on, everybody, let's go! No. <laughs> That's not what... No, that would not happen. Probably not. I'd be far more interested in going to see something called Omens because I'm like, hey, they're making a sequel to The Omen? Right, right. It's just, don't, don't... Uh, so. Sometimes... Your attempt to be a cute thing. Ah, we're, we're, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I just, I, whatever. So, anyway, th- there there are set photos. It is definitely a real thing and not a figment of our imagination. Unless the set photos are also a figment of our imagination. Oh, oh my. I'm just saying. It's a possibility. I have been eating really weird mushrooms we found in the corner. <laughs> so, also, uh, Disney has canceled their... UK launch event for Disney Plus, which was going to be in London. It was going to be at the end of this month, like March 24th or so. And uh, due to concerns over the COVID-19 coronavirus, they have elected not to hold that event. Um, and, and that's worth noting mainly because with it being a Disney Plus centered event, there probably would have been 
a bit of new footage and some new information about some of the Marvel streaming shows. Although, I had no idea that they did not have <laughs> Disney Plus in the UK yet. So They've, they've been rolling out the international uh, versions of the app sort of one by one. I think Sweden had it first before yeah. we did it. They, they were the beta testers. Yeah. Thank you, Sweden. <laughs> because it was because of Sweden that we knew that uh, in, in some parts of the app, the stuff like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was not getting grouped together with the other MCU stuff. And we don't have Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on our Disney+. Plus. We do not. Which is weird because we have Inhumans and we have Agent Carter. I'm pretty sure part of that is because Netflix still has a deal for... Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Likely so. Which, speaking of that, some of those deals are starting to expire. As of this month, Black Panther is now on Disney Plus and not Netflix. Yep. There, there was a trending topic on Twitter because Disney paid for it to be a trending topic on Twitter. I mean, I would too, if I was Disney. Yep. So, anyway, so we, we have less information, or we will have less information going forward about MCU stuff just because... Disney is canceling events in which they would be rolling out that information. We stuff might still get an online release of some of that information because, you know... If they've they already hate... cut together the teasers and stuff, they might as well put them out. Right. They hate sitting on that sort of thing because they want to get hype. And they don't want it to leak. That's true, like they, too. They want to control the information. So, anyway. So that that's happening. Also, we've got a few pieces of news about the Loki series. First uh, is that some of the set photos suggest that Marvel sort of mainstay, the Roxxon Corporation, may be playing a part in the series. Confusing, but okay. Which Roxxon, over the years, has been involved in everything from weapons testing to oil to chemicals to all kinds of stuff. Which, it's it'll be curious to see how that ties into the whole Time Variance Authority thing that we heard rumored last time around. But maybe Roxxon built a time machine. Which sounds like a terrible idea, actually. There, apparently, an, one of the set photos showed a bus labeled Roxcart Evacuation Shuttle. That, okay. That's all I got. Yeah. So We and, also and, have speculation and this is, on this casting. Is, this is also not the first appearance of Roxxon in a Marvel property, because it was featured in the Iron Man movies, usually just sort of in the background. Iron Man 3, yeah. And also... Roxxon appears in Agent Carter, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Netflix's Daredevil, and Hulu's Cloak and Dagger. And in the Agent Coulson one-shots. Yes. So so it is very much a thing that has been in the background of stuff, just not as a major... And it could just be in the background, too, for all we know. Yes, because uh, it's worth noting that these are people on their cell phone cameras shooting from, like half a mile away and not people on the set with right. insider information. And of course we also have speculation on characters yeah, coming from the series. Yeah, this is cool. Series. So there, there's two that could be somewhat related. One is the suggestion from Screen Rant, looks like, that actress Sofia DiMartino may be playing a female version of Loki. So that's a thing, okay. that's a thing in the comics but, is that Loki is as a Norse god, gender fluid, and can appear as male or female basically at will. Yeah, but there's also speculation that she may be playing... Possibly. Well, um, not clear. Uh, So that's a different actress. So Kaylee Fleming may be playing Enchantress. Wait a minute. 
there's more than one actress in the series? I'm confused. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, okay. So so we have uh we, we have Sophia DiMartino, who may be Lady Loki, which could be an alternate reality Loki. We, that's not clear yet. Okay. Um, because, again, we're dealing with time travel. We're dealing with alternate timelines. This could be an alternate reality version of Loki. But that could lead to Tom Hiddleston's Loki making some sort of comment about, yeah, I could do that too. Interesting. Um, but, yeah, so the, the other casting is uh, that Kaylee Fleming... Uh, has been cast apparently as a character called Young Sylvie, and that Sylvie could be Sylvie Luston, which is the alter ego for the Enchantress. Ah, Norse people. Uh, I I don't know them, any of them, really. Uh, I am less familiar with Enchantress, other than she was a part of some of the early Lee and Kirby Thor stories. Yeah, I know her from, like, her appearances in the Avengers as and, and didn't she run around with uh, Executioner? Yeah. Like, wasn't it, like, Enchantress and Executioner were, like, a, a two-person team? Yeah, because he was in love with her, and she was, you know, just using that. Right. Sort of sort of like early Black Widow and Hawkeye. Yes, only far more actually evil. Right, right. And, of course, Enchantress was Scarlet Witch's mother in the... Heroes Reborn Avenger series. Right. That. Yep. That. Which, you know, it's, I was thinking about this the other day, not to get off on a tangent, but Heroes Reborn was the New 52 before the New 52 was a thing. Yes. Let's have Jim Lee redesign everyone. And, and retcon all of the continuity. Yes. Like, it, it, Be- that's the thing. Like, Marvel did it first, DC saw it go badly, and then years later still thought, but what if we did it? Yes. Let's have Jim Lee design everybody. Yep. And rewrite history. Yep. It can't go wrong. <laughs> they even hired Rob Liefeld for some of the early titles. <laughs> like, you know? Yep. But, again, digression over. Uh, Enchantress and, and Lady Loki both potentially part of the Loki MCU series. Now, moving over to the other series that is far enough along in production to actually have new information... We've got a few, we've got, or at least a couple of bits of information about Falcon and Winter Soldier. Yeah, uh, we've been see- I've been seeing this poster online. Cap is back. Yeah, we've got some some MCU propaganda posters advertising John Walker as Captain America 2.0 or whatever. Which I guess they're not being shy about. Hey, this isn't the original Captain America, but here's you know an actual Captain America. And, and I just wonder if they're going to play up... If if Steve Rogers is keeping his existence as an old man, like, secret, then Captain America is officially missing in action, presumed dead, having given his life during the endgame. Yep. And so I could totally see the government swinging that as we are honoring the sacrifice of Captain America by, by continuing his legacy. Which I think he was in the immemorial clip in Homecoming. I'm sorry, Far From Home, wasn't it? I think you're right. I think that both Captain America and Iron Man were in that. Although it is Tony who gets the giant murals and all that fun stuff. Well, because he's the one who does the the new snap. Yeah. Although Hulk really did a snap that brought everybody back. He did. He did. Like, where's where's the Hulk mural? Where's the Captain America mural? Hulk is still alive. He just basically lost the use of one arm. (laughs) 
which he he's he's the Hulk. He'll probably be okay. Yeah. Now the the directors of the movie say that they intended that injury to be permanent. That's just the power of the the gauntlet. No, because once he turns back into Banner and turns back into Hulk again, he'll heal. Can he do that? Probably. We never saw him change back in Endgame. He was permanently Professor Hulk. Yeah, but something's going to happen. He's going to turn back into Banner, and then he's going to transform again into Wild Hulk. I I would be okay with that. That that should be part of She-Hulk, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay, let's move on to She-Hulk. Well, but we didn't talk about about... about Falcon Winter Soldier yet. Okay, fine. Talk about Falcon Winter Soldier. So, um, we we had the, the John Walker posters. Also, it has been suggested that everyone's favorite Cap villain, Batroc the Leaper, might be making a return. You know, I was going to make a smart comment, but no, Patrick Leeper is everybody's favorite cat villain. Patrick Leeper is awesome. I can't lie about that. He is a cool villain. <laughs> yeah. Made cooler by the fact that they cast a legit French MMA fighter as Batrock. If you say so. Well, like, they cast a guy who actually does, like, French martial arts. Okay. I'll, I mean, he's actually Canadian, well, whatever. Georges Saint-Pierre. He's, what, Quebec? Quebecois? Yeah. He's French-Canadian. Sure. Close enough. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Batroc may be back. And also, we have potentially our first visual confirmation of Battlestar. The sidekick to John Walker's character? Not clear who he's going to be teamed with, but but yeah, he's he was originally a friend of John Walker, and when John Walker was Captain America, he was first Bucky, but, but then later took on the name Battlestar. Yeah, because someone pointed out that, uh, you know... An African-American Bucky is a bad idea. Yeah, could possibly be misconstrued as a racial slur. Right. Which, fair. Which the the writers at the time, Mark Grunewald, was completely unaware of. Yes, yes. Because... Well, and was just trying to, like, maintain the continuity of a Captain America has a sidekick called Bucky. I I figure they will skip the Bucky identity altogether. There's a, a... Not even really a set photo, it's just a photo of some of the cast members, like, standing together on set. And they're all wearing, you know, like, cast and crew coats, because it's cold. But, uh, through the coat, you can see that Clay Bennett, I think is his name. He's in sort of a modified super soldier costume. Like, it, it, it has a star on the chest, but it's darker, it's not as, like, obviously red, white, and blue as John Walker's. But it, it looks sort of like an MCU version of his Battlestar outfit from the comics. Yeah, so like Bucky in World War II, he's supposed to be the Black Ops member of the team. In fact, it, it, it looks like if you mashed up the comics Battlestar costume with Steve Rogers' stealth costume from the opening of Winter Soldier. I like that, actually. I like that you have this big flag-waving hero, you know, bursting through the barricade. Everybody's focused on him, and just there's just like... Ninja dude, like, doop, 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 and you're right. out. One thing I'm curious about as to whether these two guys are going to be just regular dudes or whether gonna, they're going to do some version of the power broker. Ooh. Because that's the thing, is in, in the comics, the reason it doesn't work is because whatever cocktail of stuff the power broker gives them also makes them mentally unstable. Ooh. Damn, you're making me want to go re- reread the Grunwald run again. It's good. It's good it's stuff. It's so good. There's an omnibus of it. Yeah, I have some of the early appearances of John Walker around here somewhere. I picked them up from a, a back issue sale a while back. Yeah, because John Walker's one of your favorite Marvel characters. That's a bit much. I just, <laughs> I like, I, 
John Walker is a fascist and a terrible human being most of the time. But, but, I really enjoy the 90s palette swap characters. Okay. And as much as I complain about that early issue of Avengers that I had where the, the main team was U.S. Agent, Thunderstrike, and War Machine, I also credit that with my enjoyment of those characters. Yeah, gotcha. So, but yes, so Battlestar, not just in the show, but, but it looks like he will be suiting up. That they're not just using the character's name. Good. So that that's cool. One last MCU-related thing that we've got, and you hinted at it earlier, is we have a bit of news about the She-Hulk series. Woohoo! Now, this one's a little further off in the future, because it's not even in production yet. They're still casting. Yeah, they haven't cast, you know, She-Hulk yet. Uh, although there, there's rumors that they want uh, an Allison Brie type as She-Hulk. Which I think the internet all collectively responded, then why not hire Allison Brie? Right. I'm sure right. she could find room in her schedule for that. Probably. But also, it has been suggested by some uh, some information on casting documents and such that Jennifer Walters' specialty as an attorney will be cases involving superhero law. Which goes ahead, harkens back to the Dan Slot run with the character. It does. Which... And also, also makes sense, given that a relatively new change in the law is that the Sokovia Accords are a thing. You're, you're not wrong. And so lawyers would have to suddenly learn to specialize in that. Yep, which would probably be a good way to get ahead for a young lawyer. Yep, yep. Uh, especially one with, with so, some kind of connection there. Right, and, and also with things like... Captain America's Black Ops team that was running around for a while, and now what's going on with Spider-Man. Like, it makes sense that there would be a whole crop of new cases involving metahumans. True. It does. Uh, the other thing from the, the listing is that they are casting for a couple of supporting characters. One is uh, for an actress to play She-Hulk's best friend, and another for a character named Meg. And... The, the latter, the Meg character, is described as also a lawyer who is shrewd while having a biting wit and sense of humor. It is speculated that those two characters could be characters from some of the She-Hulk comics named Jill Stevens and Mallory Book. I'm not familiar with those characters, though, so... No, me neither. I'm not sure if that's from the slot run or if that's from the more recent run, uh, which a while back there was the, the She-Hulk run that was, like... Uh, I forget who wrote it, but there was one that ran a little more recently than the slot run. I know, I remember in the slot run they had um, Andy the the android, which I doubt they're going to have here. Right, although that would be fun. It w I loved Andy, Andy <laughs> and the researcher guy and all the other people. From the, oh, that was a, that was a fun run. Another one I would love to go back and reread. Yes, but of course, instead I'm reading Golden Age Batman stories because um, I'm weird sometimes. <laughs> And uh, it also has been revealed, this isn't in this article, but I just remember having read this, but uh, Mark Ruffalo has been in talks to uh, reprise the role of Bruce Banner in She-Hulk. He probably will. Even if it's just a cameo. Because Mark Ruffalo has always seemed extremely game. Yeah, well, and especially since he's the guy who doesn't get solo movies, like, he, no. he probably has more appearances left on his contract than some of the others. Because of the Universal deal. Right, yeah. They're not allowed to make a feature with She-Hulk, or with Hulk, rather, um, without giving Universal a cut. Yep. Which, 
they don't have to, so they probably won't. Right, right. Until they can afford to buy Universal the way they did Fox. I mean, that would solve the theme park problem. <laughs> <laughs> just just merge Universal Studios Orlando into Disney World. Buy all the land in between and just be like... <laughs> just, we, own, we own Florida now. We, are, we At least Orange County. Right, right. I mean, actually, actually never mind, they do own, own Orange County. They, so. they do, yes. <laughs> so, I think that does it for Hellstrom Watch. Maybe. <laughs> for now, at least. <laughs> yeah. And, and we are recording early, just FYI, so it is entirely possible some new information could drop between now and when the next episode comes out, uh, when you're able to download this. But but for now, that's that's where we're at. Yeah, I was completely not expecting them to cast Ray Liotta as Jennifer Walters. <laughs> I mean, you know, I have t- total faith in, in Marvel, and I think I think it'll turn out okay. Uh, but yeah, we're also talking about some comics. We are. That is, in episode. fact, the main focus of this this show usually. So we have yeah. two books for today. We have Man Thing number two. And then we also have the latest installment in one of our black and white monster mags. And that's going to be Vampire Tales number three, featuring Morbius and Satana. Yep. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Vampire Tales number three. Hi, I'm John Wilson. And I'm Michael Kaiser. And we're the hosts of the podcast Make Ours Marvel. You know, here we are in 2018, 10 years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, can you believe we live in a world where everyone's old Aunt Petunia knows who Iron Man is? It's crazy, right? So, to celebrate, we're on our mission to explore the roots of the Marvel Universe. You know you've thought about it. Some of you may have even done it, and now we're going to do it too. We're diving back into the long boxes of Marvel's history and podcasting our way through the whole universe. All of it. Every superhero issue. And, if I can convince Mike, we'll even do Sergeant Fury. And it's not going to be one issue per episode. That'd take forever. (laughs) It's still going to take forever. But no, we're going to talk about as many comics as we can in an hour. Yep, an hour and, you know, maybe a little change. Every week, Marvel Comics. So it'd be super cool if you came along for the ride. Look for us every Friday at MakeOursMarvel.com. That's MakeOursMarvel.com. Or on iTunes and all the other usual podcasty places. And if you want to read along with us and send us your thoughts, we might even read emails. So until Avengers Infinity War gets a spin-off Warlock and the Infinity Watch TV show, make ours marvel. If you think all vampires are ugly creatures of the night, then you are in for a shattering surprise. Lust for a vampire. Disciples of the Black Mass. Devils in female bodies whose embrace is the kiss of death for man or woman. (coughs) Lust for a Vampire. Released by American Continental Films in color. Rated R. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our first book for today is Vampire Tales number three. The cover date is February 1974 and the editor is Roy Thomas. Our first story for today, The Kiss of Death, written by Jerry Conway, pencils and inks by Esteban Moroto. Satana arrives in Los Angeles and immediately encounters a group of Satan worshippers as they are accosted by priest Harry Gotham, 
for the benefit of his real audience, the camera that he has following him. Before the scene can escalate into violence, Satana shouts and brings the crowd to a standstill. Impressed by her powers, one of the Satanists invites Satana to join her as the crowd disperses, much to the disappointment of Gotham. Soon after, Satana leaves her new friend, Ruth, and goes in search of sustenance. She finds a man on his way home from work and, despite his apparent goodness, senses a seed of weakness and desire that she might exploit. She summons him to an alley and devours his soul. Meanwhile, Gotham meets with a Dr. Darkos Edge about Satana. Gotham agrees to pay $20,000, commenting that the evil in Satana frightens him. Back in the apartment, Satana and Ruth discuss Satan, and Ruth describes a dream in which he came to her and promised that one day she would serve him and her life would leave her, and when she awakened, she found the mark of Satan on her shoulder. Satana shares that she too bears such a mark, although in her case it was passed from father to daughter. That night, Satana conducts a ritual to summon her father, but the same four who drove her from her home also prevent her from contacting her father. Just then, two assassins arrive at the apartment and kill Ruth. In response, Satana kills the first assassin and devours the soul of the other. She then tracks down Harry Gotham, claiming his soul as well. So, does Ruth get fridged here? Little bit. A little bit. That seems to happen to these uh, somewhat sympathetic female cultist characters in these magazines. Yeah, because we had the same thing happen to the female cultist character in Morbius. Yep, sure in did. In a previous issue of this magazine. Yep, sure did. And it seems to be going somewhere, and then she's dead. Yep, 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 yep. Like, we also had something somewhat similar in Ghost Rider. Yeah, although we do still have Linda Little Tree. Linda Little Tree managed to survive. Yeah. But, yeah. What if it's the same cult? <laughs> no, I'm serious. What if it's the same cult and we're, like, unknowingly linked to all of this? This is true. It doesn't seem to be the same cult that's going on in the, the Morbius story from this issue. But no. that I could be wrong. They're both in Los Angeles, though, so it could be. Yeah. Like, or it could it could just be the Marvel writers having some fun suggesting that Los Angeles is just full of Satan shippers. Which, you kind of have to wonder how much of that is the fact they're all New Yorkers. Right, right. And like, ah, uh, L.A. is just hippies and, uh, and cultists. Yep, yep. So apparently this Dr. Darkos Edge is a character we'll be seeing more of. Oh? Apparently the, the whole, like, dark church stuff is, is something that, that comes up, maybe? Although he's only listed as having one appearance, so who knows? No, he gets kissed by Satana and his soul taken on 14. That's right. He He's the other assassin. That's right. Yeah. He, he's, he, he got butterflied. Right. The Dark Church has more appearances, though. Which, the, the panel of him getting butterflied is really good. It is. On 14, where she, she kisses him and then she pulls the butterfly out with her teeth. Yes. Yes. The art in, gen That's really the art in general in this story is very good. It makes, is. It makes great we, we, use of the black and white with some good, like, negative space stuff with silhouettes and things. Yes. And there's a part, like, on page nine where she's taking her first victim where her hair kind of melts into her hair from another panel. Yep. And the contrast here are really nice, really clean. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's it's just really lovely. And, and like when she when she's using her hypnotic powers on the crowd at the beginning, and you have that insert panel of like her eyes and everything else is darkened. Yep, I think this story would actually would have lost a lot if you had put it in color. Yeah, I agree. Well, you you'd have to totally rethink the visuals. Yes, I think this is the this is honestly the best use of black and white art we've seen in this series. And and part of that is and, and we'll get to this because it comes up later but the Esteban Moroto is just great um and he has experience in magazines and stuff so that that helps in fact Esteban Moroto uh for what it's worth is the one who designed the metal bikini for Red Sonja in Savage Tales Oh really Yep Oh okay and also penciled her first solo story which was then inked by Neil Adams. Okay, something we should probably mention here is the very overt sexual nature of the story. Oh, 100%. Like, like that, is, it, that is something that makes her distinct from her brother, I think. It, yes, because I, I, I don't think uh, Damon would have quite the same power just standing there like, hiya there, hands on hips. But even just, like, the way she chooses victims has to do with sensing the weakness of desire. Yeah. She she definitely has like a Ra- Raquel Welch thing going. She does. Yep, it's very much that late 60s, early 70s pinup quality. Yes. And it seems like, depending on the panel, sometimes the sort of horn shapes of her hair are less prominent. Yes. That could just be the penciling, though. Sometimes it's her hair, sometimes it's her eyebrows. Yeah, yeah. That are making the horns. Yeah, yeah, almost functioning sort of like the, the edges of a domino mask. Yeah, like it, and like the in in silhouette, it almost looks like the the Silver Age Catwoman mask. And then, like sometimes, pe- most of the time, people don't realize that she has freaking cat eyes. Yep. Until yep. it's too late. This is true. And th- there's also some setup here for things that I presume we will find out in later stories. So, like the mysterious four that are proving her from contacting her father. Yeah. Like we don't know what that's about. But I'm assuming that's some kind of glimmer around her that, like, they can't see her true nature until it's too late. They just mm-hmm. know that she is freaking gorgeous. Right, right. Whereas we, as the reader, we can realize she's pretty obviously a demon. She's she got some weird stuff going on here. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if there's a weakness here, it's that the villains, Harry Gotham and uh, Dr. Edge, are both underdeveloped. Like... Exactly what is going on with them and what their relationship is just seems a little sketchy. Yeah, although I do have a note here. Morgan Edge, he's in a wrong universe. <laughs> because it is around that time. It is, it is. But yeah, it was good. It, it, this is what I wanted the first Satana story to be. And I guess technically it is the first Satana story. Because before, all we really had was a cameo. Yeah, really, we got a teaser last time. Yeah, it was like... It was like the movie trailer for this. In fact, you could take that whole sequence and just put it in in place of that guy that she seduces in the middle of the story. Yes. I mean, this is this is the stinger scene before the opening credits. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, so, what, that was the stinger scene before the opening credits, rather. Right. So, so in that sense, this, this was fine. It was good. It, it helps us know a little bit more about Satana, leaves us wanting more. Um, because there's still plenty that we don't know about her. 
Um, like, she keeps referring to her traitorous brother, which is a nice sort of nod to the fact that there's a whole other book that people should be buying. I mean, should they, though? <laughs> I mean, I am speaking from Roy Thomas's perspective here. Okay. Not from the perspective of somebody who's read it, maybe. Sure. Although, that, that, that second issue was good. Once it actually became a Hellstrom story and not a Ghostwriter story, it got better. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, it was a good story. Yeah. I don't think I have a whole lot more to say about it other than just how much I like the art. Art, gorgeous. Raquel Welch, a.k.a. Uh, Satana, gorgeous. Yeah. And Jerry Conway. Can't go wrong with Jerry Conway. I mean, you no. can, but he, he's generally pretty good. Generally. Okay. Despite fridge cultists. Right. So, let's move on to our second story, and that is The Collection. Written by Bob Stewart, pencils by Paul Reinman, inks by Ross Jones and Bob Stewart, and letters by Bob Stewart. Chris Baker is a superfan and collector of memorabilia related to B-movie starlet Millicent Mason. Mario Borgatti calls about a nostalgia story being written and asks if he and Mason herself can come by Baker's place. When they arrive, Chris is shocked that Mason looks just as she did 30 years ago. They pose together with Chris's collection as Mario takes photos. As they leave, Chris mentions that the one thing missing from his collection are stills from a film called The Black Baroness. Later that evening, Mason calls to tell Baker she found those stills in her own scrapbooks and invites him to come over and collect them. At her aging mansion, they discuss her career over tea, and then she guides him down a dark flight of stairs to join the rest of the fans she feeds on to maintain her youth. Bum, 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 bum. This is the 1974 version of a 1950s horror anthology story. It is. It really is. Like, twist ending like, and all. Like, yeah, twist ending I, you can see a mile away and all. Yes. Like, I almost expected to find out this was a reprint that they'd redrawn, like, some of the panels. Of. I had to check twice. I, I did, too. It's just, this really does seem like one of those reprint stories. Even the art looks a little bit more old-fashioned. Yep. Like, except, now the hairstyles show that it's a 70s story. But again, I was thinking it was like that, you know, that uh, Tales of the Zombie story, which they yep, redrew. where they touched it up, yep. They touched touch panels, and no, it isn't. This is a original story. Yeah. Written by people that we will never hear from again. Yeah, but look at how heavy those inks are. Like, it looks like a 50s story. It does. It's, it's not bad. It's fine. It, for what it is, it's fine. Um, like I said, you see the twist ending coming a mile away. Yeah, it, I mean it's it's Sunset Boulevard with vampires. But with a vampire, right? Which let's not let's not be mistaken. I would watch that in like a movie horror anthology. Oh yeah, totally. like that would be cool. It like redo uh, Sunset Boulevard, but with a vampire. Well, that's what this it feels like. It feels like like you know an Anipus horror anthology, like you know Tales mm-hmm. from the Crypt or the other one whose name I'm forgetting right now. It does. It's just it it has such a short page. It has such a short page count that it's not really possible to build the kind of suspense that's necessary. No, no, it really doesn't. Although it isn't our smallest page count. Although yes, it no, it is. It's only four pages. Um, aside from the one pager that we've got at the end, yes. True. So yeah. Okay. So this is like the Satana story that we had in the previous issue. Yeah. No. It, it's just a. It's. It is sort of a digestif. After that longer Satana story. Yeah. 
I mean, it's like, okay, you, we laid some heavy stuff on you with that Satana story. Here is a little cute little story about a fanboy getting eaten. And and it again, it's placed where I would have expected a reprint to be. Yeah, you're not wrong. So, yeah, um, so I don't know there's a whole lot more to say about it. It's fine. It, it's diverting. Yeah, it's, it's like you said, I would watch it in an anthology film. and be like, yep, saw that coming. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. And with the right cast, I wouldn't be mad at it. No. So... Kind of reminds me of that Columbo episode where he where there that has old movie starlet in it. Right. Of course, now I can't remember if she was the killer or not. <laughs> well, time to go back and watch all of Columbo. <laughs> uh, so the next story is a reprint of a Stanley Carmine Infantino story, which is like that's an interesting pairing. But I'm going to move on. And after apparently that, they were good friends. I can see that. Sort of similar generations. So you know, so it was interesting when you know. Infantino was running DC and uh, Stanley was running Marvel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they sort of worked their way up through the ranks around the same time. Yeah. So, but like I say, it's a reprint. We don't do those. So moving on, our next new story, Bats Belfry. This one is written by August Derleth and Don McGregor. Pencils and inks by Vincent Ibanez. Sir Harry Everett Barclay writes in his journal dated June 10th, 1925, from his summer home on a secluded moor, supposedly a place harboring evil spirits. He also writes of a recurring dream in which a spectral woman draws him out of his home and into the fog. Later, he discusses these dreams with his valet, Leon, who has had a similar dream. Just then, another man called Mortimer rushes in, claiming to have seen a ghost, an old man hovering over him during the night. They ask local villagers to give them the history of the summer home, and so they hear the story of Baronet Lorville and the four disappeared girls who ended up at the manor, then called Bats Free. Later, Mortimer claims to have seen monstrous bats in the cellar, and so Harry goes to investigate. Harry searches the manor and finds an old trunk covered in occult markings containing books on the black arts, along with a copy of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Harry reads the tomes. Eventually, Mortimer leaves, refusing to stay in a haunted manor. To be safe, Leon goes to get some holy water from the village church. However, on the way back he drops the jar, and the local doctor suggests he has lost a lot of blood. Harry continues to have the same dream, but now, instead of the woman, he sees Baronet Lorvel, the same old man that Mortimer saw earlier. Eventually, Leon leaves the manor for good, alone. Harry goes back to the cellar and removes a stone covering on the ground, where he finds the Book of Thoth, along with skeletons that prove the house must be inhabited by vampires. Using the book, Harry conjures the vampires, only to be bitten and turned himself. Oof. This one's just got way much going on. It, it's pretty terrible. It can't figure out if it wants to be a ghost story, or a vampire story, or a Lovecraftian horror story. And it doesn't find a way to be a good mixing of all of them. No. Like, the whole, like, ancient tomes of the dark arts things, that's very Lovecraft. Yes. The, the, the journal entries could be Lovecraftian, could be some sort of weird tribute to Bram Stoker. Yes. It also doesn't hold up, because apparently he continued writing as they were biting him. Yeah, like, the hell, dude. Which, to tell a, to tell a, a personal story, like, I, like, when I was a kid and dabbled in creative writing... I personally kept trying to write a story like that that was told in, in journal entries 
but with a tragic ending. And I always ran into the exact same problem, was that how do you keep the story going after the bad things have happened? Because no realistic person would continue writing in the moment of the bad things happening. Yeah, like, they would just stop. Like, I'm going now to confront the evil... If this is my last entry, you know what right, happened. but you can't actually find out what happens after that if it's tragic. Right. So, it's like, dude just kept writing. Yeah. Okay. Admire his dedication. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I... The art's okay. It's it's a little it's bit old-fashioned. Like, I was... I, I, this is another one where I was like, is this a reprint? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, a lot of it's the heavy inks. Yeah. It's like inkers that are not used to doing black and white magazines and are being way too heavy on the outlines. Because they're expecting it to be filled in with color. Yeah. Right, right. And that makes it look like a 50s reprint. Yeah. Which so apparently it's not. No, no. Well, it's a McGregor story, so... Yeah. But but it is it is no jungle action featuring Black Panther. Nope. Nope, it is not. So. Which apparently is going on at this time. Yeah, they, they name drop it several times throughout the magazine. Which better book you should go read that one <laughs> it is uh like i say this one it's all over the place way too many different types of stories getting meshed together um also the the like journal entry dates like the the, the time jumps are weird because the story is too short for it to have that many time jumps i don't know it's just unnecessarily convoluted maybe if it's a longer story yeah, like it, it needed it would need to be like feature in a color anthology, you know? Like, one where you have, like, one or two stories plus a backup. I can see that. It's just... It's too ambitious. Yeah. Like, honestly, what and what they should have done would be decide, okay, this is going to be an ongoing feature for the next three issues, and do Bat Spell Free Part 1, Part 2, Part 3, across three issues of Vampire Tales. And each part being part of the journal. Yeah, yeah. Like, you could divide it up by either by journal date or by month or whatever. Like, build that suspense, because there's no build at all right now. Right. And and it's too convoluted for me to be scared of any of it. Because I'm too busy trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Yep. Yeah, that's a problem. So, anyway. It is what it is. I was disappointed, because I usually look forward to a Don McGregor story. Well, luckily, you do have another one in this issue. This is true. This is true. So... Uh, let's go ahead and move on, because I've run out of things to say about this one. Yeah. The next story is the one-pager I mentioned earlier, and it is called Vampires in Time and Space. The script is by Tony Isabella, and the pencils and inks are by Pablo Marcos. And basically what we've got here is an overview of vampires throughout history in different parts of the world. And so we get a look at Assyrian mythology... The, Assyri- the ancient Assyrians believed in the Ekimu, a ghostly vampire who devoured its victims and could kill whole families just through its frightening appearance. We also get a look at the ancient Greek Lamia, a half-woman, half-snake, who specifically fed on the blood of children. And then we also get a look at the Rakshasa of India, which were malevolent spirits who animated corpses. And while they usually fed on horses, a single scratch from one, from one would instantly and pain kill any human. I really dig this one, Pager. It, it's fun, and it looks like this is going to be an ongoing thing. The suggestion here is that Isabella is going to keep giving us, like, little sort of summaries of different international vampires. 
I would even take like a two-page spread of this. This is exactly what I want from Vampire Tales. Yeah, it's fun. It's uh, in fact, I wish that this was paired with maybe some of the prose Claremont stuff that gets into the history of vampires because I think they would play well side by side. I would also like, you know, maybe some contemporary depictions of these monsters too, mm-hmm. rather than just the artist depiction. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, Paul Marcos artwork is beautiful. Yeah. But I'm also, I, I, I want some vampire pottery. Yes. It would also just be nice if they would draw some inspiration from these different types of vampires for their stories. True. Like, give me a story about a Greek snake lady. Yeah. Give me the hopping vampire. Sure. I'm hoping they show up in a future installment of this. Because those Chinese hopping vampires are cool. Yep. Also Mexican vampires, which are a whole thing. Like, there's all kinds of stuff that they could look at. And... Hopefully this segment continues, but like I say, if they were smart, instead of giving us weird, convoluted stuff like that McGregor story, they could draw inspiration from these myths. Yeah, because it does seem like we are just going back to the well of Dracula again and again, and we already have a Dracula magazine and a Dracula comic book. And when when your sort of solo feature of this magazine is already a kind of weird vampire offshoot, why not do more weird vampire offshoots? You're not wrong. So, like, lean into that song. I don't know. But anyway, it's a fun one-pager. There's not a lot to say about it, aside from the art being cool, and it being interesting to get, like, some different creatures other than just sort of uh, Germanic and English versions of of vampires. Yeah, because... See, now I'm just thinking about, God, I I want these diverse vampire stories and not just the same count so-and-so stories yeah like it's always a white guy in a tuxedo with a batwing cape yep Ugh. and it's okay to do that occasionally but also like you said we've got two whole dracula books right now yeah which he kind of fills that niche so yep so but i think that is a good place to move on to our final comic story of the magazine and that's going to be our morbius feature it's called Demon Fire, written by Don McGregor, pencils Rich Buckler, and inks by Klaus Jensen. Morbius descends on Ravenwood Cemetery and feeds on the caretaker, happy not to know his victim. He then returns to his goal of saving Amanda Saint. See previous issue. Inside the crypt, he finds a secret entrance to an underground lair where Demon Fire cultists prepare to sacrifice Amanda. Meanwhile, A menacing figure emerges from a car at the cemetery, entering the same secret entrance Morbius found. Watching the ritual, Morbius spots the brutish Catabolic and his scythe, as well as Poison Lark, formerly Amanda's sister, Catherine, holding a blade above Amanda's body. Just then, the mysterious masked figure arrives behind Morbius and attacks him. Catabolic joins the fight too, and Morbius bites his arm to escape. As Poison Lark continues the ritual, A monstrous demonic spider appears on its web above the fray. The mysterious man unmasks, revealing himself to be Justin, Amanda's boyfriend. Back at Justin's apartment for some reason, his roommates are arguing about Justin not being on board with their lifestyle of dealing drugs and getting high. Meanwhile, back in the secret underground chamber, the spider Arachne has encased Amanda in a web cocoon. Desperate, Morbius throws himself between Amanda and the spider, allowing it to bite him instead. Amazingly, Morbius's altered biology proves fatal to the spider, killing it almost instantly. 
He carries Amanda, and the two escape as the chamber collapses around them, not realizing that Justin escaped as well. Later, Justin sneaks back to his apartment, planning to move away and join up with another cult before Amanda can report him to the police. However, the police are already there, and he and his roommates are beaten and dragged away. Morbius kills a spider. <laughs> so, Morbius kills a spider. Yeah, uh, ooh, okay. Uh, I'm going to start with some things that I like about it. First, the layouts are cool. Yeah. I like the layouts. Like, Buckler and Jansen do a great job here. They do. Um, also, I kind of like the irony of a monster dying because it bit more. <laughs> yeah. Like, that is actually clever. Careful what you eat. Right, but like normally Morbius bites something and kills it, so it's it's nice for the inverse to happen. Yes. Like And it's nice to get a Morbius versus Spider rematch after that amazing Spider-Man issue. This is true. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> um I, I was sort of reminded a little bit of the weird spider monsters from uh was it Tales of the Zombie? Yeah. 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 Chicks getting turn, turned into uh, spider monsters. Yep, yep, yep. Which, th- that's obviously where this giant spider came from, because there's no other explanation for it. Right. No, it, I mean, again, we've got some sort of weird quasi-Lovecraftian summoning going on, but none of it is explored in enough detail for us to really know. Yeah, so that Doctor's formula is just getting around. Yeah, again, a weakness of this is the plotting. Like... Why do we have that weird digression back to the apartment in the middle of the fight? <laughs> also, this escalated really quickly. <laughs> like, we don't even see her finding out that her sister's, like, part of the cult. No, Morbius knows. Yeah, but we don't see her revelation. Right. And we we kind of get Justin's revelation. Right. But it's it's disappointing. It's anticlimactic. Yeah, well, because you kind of know who it is before he unmasks. Yeah, I think a left turn would be for Justin to help save her because he's got his own plans for her. Right, that was sort of what I expected because I figured last guy was Justin, like from the beginning. But I kind of thought that he would end up teaming up with Morbius at least temporarily. Yeah, but but no, it's just it's weirdly plotted. The pacing is off, and again, it makes no sense in the middle of that fight scene to go back to the apartment for an argument that has very little bearing on the plot. Except it reminds us that these characters exist because they were in the last story. Yeah, it reminds us that not only is Justin a scumbag, he's also right, a narc. Right. Like Which comes back to bite him, since we're talking about ironies. Yes, because he gets beaten up by the by the cops yeah. here. Which might be the most realistic thing in the story. <laughs> Maybe we'll see him again. <laughs> oh no. There's a lot of blood seeping from that body they're dragging away. <laughs> Just a bit. But the layout of that epilogue is awesome, with the negative space silhouette of Morbius behind the panels. Like Just as a page, it looks cool, even if what's happening in it does not matter at all. Yes, we still need to remind you that this is a Morbius book, even though what's happening here has very little to do with Morbius. Right, like it's an epilogue that is not about the main character. Yeah. I think it's fairly obvious this happens before the events of Fear Number Twenty. Yeah, yes, that's fair. And like, maybe right before. Right, right. And again, since I'm talking about layouts, uh, I like 
the first page where the the panels create the the cross on the tombstone. Yeah, it's, it's obvious. Uh, Buckler was having some fun with panel layouts here. Mm-hmm. It makes me wish that Buckler was the artist for the color comic. Me too. Me too. And there's also some really interesting stuff, like the top of page 62, where you've got like four panels together, but the four panels create one image. Yeah. Uh, that is straight up some stuff like you would see in a contemporary, like Mitch Gerard's comic. Like that's that's like Mr. Miracle type stuff. It's good. So yeah, the art's great. I like. Again, we complained about the Morbius art in the la- in the the fear issue. This is some good Morbius art. It is. It is. Everything looks interesting, and everything. Again, this should this should be the thing they're putting out there in fear. Mm-hmm. Because if we're talking about like a follow up to Man thing, this cuts it. The other thing doesn't. Right. Right. In that this actually involves an adventure into fear. Yes. Actually, yeah, that's clever. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I dig that. But yeah, so again, it's it's. I think this feels more consequential than the previous Morbius story in Vampire Tales, partly because it's the the part two, so we actually get more action. Even though it feels like a part three. It does, but but we're I guess we're doing two parters, so you know. Yeah. But it, it's it, it was fine. It's I I think if we're ranking them, it's better than. The color Morbius story we had, but still not as good as any of the Dracula books. No. So, uh, before we move on, though, uh, we do have some prose pieces in this issue. First is Vampire Hunting for Fear and Profit, which is an article by Chris Claremont. It's the third part of his ongoing sort of review and summary of the book um, Vampires is Kith and Kin. It's fine. It's, again, basically summarizing vampire mythology as presented in this uh, in this book, which apparently at the time was retailing for $7.95. Wow. Which uh, Claremont says is a steep price. is better than many other prices on vampire books flitting around right now. And nowadays you'd be lucky to get a Kindle book for less than $9.99. And, and again, the reason I said that it would have been nice for this to be tied into the Tony Isabella one-pager is because this also gets into some mythology from different parts of the world with Greek vampires and Serbian, Bulgarian, Romanian, so on and so forth. Yeah, but you don't want the readers thinking this is some kind of educational magazine. <laughs> I don't know. It ends with the, the best practices for how to find and deal with vampire. Something every, every boy should Which know. apparently uh, you, you take a young virgin boy and put him on a horse, and let the horse ride through a cemetery, and whichever grave the horse refuses to cross over is the one the vampire is hiding in. That explains a lot about my childhood, actually. (laughs) Uh, And then once you've identified the the vampire's hiding place, uh, you either expose them to sunlight, or cremate them, or you can tie their two big toes and their two thumbs together. Or you can cut off their uh, hams from behind the knee and prick the body with pens. Or, of course, you can always go with the tried-and-true uh, maple steak through the heart. Again, my childhood's making a lot more sense now. <laughs> so, and that, that's basically the Claremont piece. It's fine. It's, it's got a lot of, of uh, illustrations and uh, photos from movies and things. Um, so, 
you know, very similar to the other Claremont prose pieces we've had. Uh, the next prose piece is Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Satana, But Were Too Awestruck to Ask. And this is the feature of the magazine written by uh, Carla Joseph and is sort of a, a fun, tongue-in-cheek peek behind the scenes at Marvel. Um, it's It gives us sort of a glimpse from the relatively low-ranking Carla Joseph's point of view at the interactions between Don McGregor, Marv Wolfman, uh, Tony Isabella, uh, John Verporten, Roy Thomas, like basically all the heavy hitters of the day show up in this. And, and it takes place as the first art by Esteban Moroto of Satana arrives in the office. It, it is rather amazing art. It is. And like, and one, we, one thing that especially shows through is we talked about how much more of sort of a sexual creature Satana is compared to the other Marvel monsters we've encountered. That also shows through in this, where basically a big chunk of the, the feature is the various male writers sort of drooling over the art. Which, it's worth pointing out, this is a female character being written by male writers... In the 1970s, yeah, it's going to be a very sexual title. Right, right. It's uh, and, and the the last thing we are given in the feature is as everyone sort of files out of Roy's office and gets back to work, uh, Jerry continues sitting in the corner, mumbling, "She's mine. She's mine. She's all mine." <laughs> we have an official Satana logo, by the way. Yeah, yeah. This she looks like something out of a heavy metal cover. She does. And, and one thing that we're told is that Ramita started the work on the character. And then from Ramita, uh, Moroto took over. And between the two of them, they started out with like three distinct separate designs. And then those three designs sort of got fused together into one. We have a depiction of the uh, Ramita version on the last page of the article. And mm -hmm. she is very much more of a classic Ramita woman. Yes, yes. And, and and that appearance, the the very last image, is pretty close to what we got in the story we covered this issue. Just not drawn by Ramita. No, no. The original gimmick they were going to go with was for the teaser appearance in the previous issue. They were going to start by show. They were going to show three different character designs and not tell readers which one was actually the Satana design. Oh, um, but they decided that was too much of a gimmick and, and might just confuse people. And so they consolidated the, the designs into one. I would like to see both, all three designs, though. Yeah, yeah. Because we kind of have a Gamora thing going. Oh, yeah, with, with the designs around the eyes. Yeah. And the, the sort like of, like, skull stuff and the horns and, I don't know. Yeah, a little bit of Jim Starlin in there. And I almost, I, I, kind of, I could even imagine these, like, way more elaborate designs with the the horn uh the the ram's horns and the skulls and everything being more of how she appeared when she was living with her father in hell yeah like different forms like her power ranger mode <laughs> because it seems like she had exiled somehow and so it would make sense that her appearance would shift now that she's on earth yes Ugh. See, this this actually does make me want to read more Satana. Yeah, no, it's cool. Um, and like I say, the, the, the prose piece, I'm not doing it justice, but it's it's rather fun in that we have Carla Joseph sort of giving very, very humorous versions of the various writers in the bullpen. 
Yeah, it's a fun piece. So, so there's there's that. That's sort of the the big prose feature in the magazine. But then finally, at the very end, continuing our series of sort of spotlight features on uh, Marvel writers and creators in the magazines, we have "Support Your Local Short Autobiographer" by Donald F. McGregor, and that's basically just with the the Gerber piece uh, before it. We have just a humorous Don McGregor writing about his own sort of career and and background. Yeah. And it's just, it's very humorous. It's very tongue-in-cheek. You don't learn a lot about him from it, really. No. I mean, you you very rarely learn a ton about a person from an autobiography thing. True, true. But but he's not, like, he makes a point of saying he's not even trying. And and what we get from it are more, you get a lot of his personality and sense of humor but less about sort of the facts of how he got his start in comics or where he went to school or, you know, any of that kind of, like, more t- traditional autobiographical stuff. Yeah. It, it like I said, like like I said, it, it's It fun. ends with him saying, uh, Don, you're copping out. Well, that someone is right. So I don't think I'll write this thing. I'll just cop out. Maybe next year I'll do it. So he's admitting that he didn't actually do what the assignment asked for. We also get some ads for the next issue of Vampire Tales, The Coming of the Snow Vampires. Yep, yep. We which that that that's a different take of vampires, maybe. Maybe. It's an adaptation of an August Derleth story, although we should we should be worried. August Derleth also was the right the the co- the the source for the Bats Belfry oh, yeah. story. Earlier in the magazine, we do get some promotion for Simon Garth and Dracula Lives. Uh, we also right. get some promotion for the actual Marvel comics with promotion for Submar- the Savage Submariner number 69, where he fights Spider-Man. Uh, right. We get promotion for another Thor-Hercules fight in Thor. We get promotion right. for Savage Tales featuring Conan the Barbarian. And we get... Oh, nat- Which appears to have a vampire on the cover. Yep. We, or a demon of some sort, at least. We get a promotion for back issues of Monster Madness. And I hear right. breaking on the doors for that one. As well as <laughs> your own glow-in-the-dark life-size vampire bat. I mean, that's, that's actually pretty cool. And we have uh, some shilling for other Marvel magazines like Crazy. Yeah, which I will note... There was a line in the Satana feature that made me chuckle a little bit just because of how ridiculous it was. Uh, and that was in the Satana feature uh, by uh, Carla Joseph. There is a, a one-line gag that I could not help but chuckle at because Marv Wolfman is searching for his glasses at one point and quoted as saying, Tony, are you sure you didn't mail my glasses to Doug Kenny with the Crazy Magazine rejection slip? The joke being that Crazy is so funny that Doug Kenny would not be able to get his articles printed there. And Doug Kenny is one of the co-founders of the National Lampoon. And then they made that movie about him. They did, yes. And a documentary. Okay. I watched the movie, not documentary. Ah, the documentary is good, too. The mo- Although if you've seen the movie, a lot of the stories are covered. Yeah. Good movie. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that just an aside because crazy came up. Um, one other thing that's in this magazine is that we also do have um, a, a full-page ad for Dracula Lives, 
which uh, advertises that they are beginning their adaptation of Bram Stoker's original novel uh, by the team of Roy Thomas Dick Giordano. Which doesn't actually get concluded in that magazine. (laughs) Right, because the magazine will be canceled before they finish. Yep. And there's also a Dracula vs. Cagliostro story in the France of Marie Antoinette. That should be interesting. Yeah. And bonus photos and features. Yep. And the, the, the ad has some good art with Dracula and giant vampire bat. Always fun. But I think that does it for this magazine, uh, Vampire Tales number three. Uh, speaking of number threes, though, we'll be right back with Man Thing number three. Uh, number two. Two? Are you yeah, sure? One, number two. Yeah. Okay. Man Thing number two, right after this message. podcast listener. My name is Charlie Neymar, and I host a show called Charlie's Geekcast, all about me and what I like, but mostly about what I like. 2020 marks a pretty special year for me. For one thing, I'll be turning 40 this year. But this year also marks 10 years since I started podcasting by talking about Superman's adventures in the Bronze Age. Coincidentally, this year also marks 50 years since Superman entered the Bronze Age. To celebrate all of this, This year I'll be doing a series of episodes called Geeking on Superman in the Bronze Age, where I'll be looking at some great Bronze Age Superman adventures that I didn't get around to the first time around. It's a lot of around. So check out Charlie's Geekcast, part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network at twotruefreaks.com. Also, you can find the show at charliesgeekcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Want action? Then zip it! Screamin' Cater Zipline! Take your thrills to new heights! Do you want to soar up to 65 feet above treetops, crocodiles and alligators on a pulse-pounding adventure you'll never forget? Then get in line! Screamin' Cater Zipline, that is! Swing into action at Gatorland! Make reservations now at Gatorland.com! Welcome back to Move Ideas. Lastly, this episode, we have an issue of the new title, one of our new titles, Man-Thing, with Man-Thing number two. Cover date on this, of course, is February 1974. Writer is Steve Gerber. Artist is Val Myrick. Inker is Sal Trapani. Letterer is Gene Izzo. Colorist is Petra Goldberg. Editor, of course is Roy Thomas. Richard Rory is bemoaning his perpetual bad luck after breaking down the swamp when a spilled pot of coffee angers a nearby alligator into attacking. Fortunately, Man-Thing is nearby and uses his old smash-a-gator against a tree trick to save Rory from getting eaten outright. Unfortunately, he's still bleeding out and Man-Thing flunked his first aid class at the Y, so the monk monster decides to wander back into the swamp. Meanwhile, in Miami, cue Will Smith music, F.A. Schist, holy crap, his name is Fascist, however I never realized this before, is trying to find a scientist who will help him in his elimination of the Man-Thing, who is delaying construction of his new airport. He finds such a poor excuse for a scientist in the form of Hargood Wickham, also known by many in the scientific community as Professor Slaughter, who agrees that Man-Thing is a fine opportunity to come up with new ways to kill things, and they begin to plan. Meanwhile, back in the swamp, 
Rory has been found and nursed back to health by a down-to-earth hippie former biker chick, Ruth Hart. Unfortunately, the former part of former biker chick is fairly recent, and Ruth's old gang, the Skull Crushers, led by Ruth's psychopathic, chain-wielding former beau, Snake, is hot on her trail after some supposedly stolen money. The gang find the two budding lovebirds and chase them into the swamp. But because the name of this book is Man-Thing and not the adventures of Ruth and Rory, the fleeing pair quickly come upon a shack that has been set up by Schist and Professor Slaughter as a complicated laser trap for the Monk Monster, one which our star has already fallen into. The Man-Thing escapes using a chain it's stolen from Snake in an earlier encounter I didn't see worth mentioning, and the Man-Thing then tosses the chain away where it hits and kills Snake just about to do something similar to Ruth and Rory. Ending that little tableau and this issue as the monster wanders once again into the swamp. So, a couple things. First, I can tell you exactly where I finally figured out that F.A. Schist is fascist, and that would be at the bottom left corner of page 10, because the way the lettering is done and the way the name is in bold print calls attention to all of it being read together. Yep, that's where I realized it too. And, and I guess, you know, Steve Gerber is not exactly known for his subtlety. No, but... It took us, what, like four issues to figure that out? It did. It did. Well, a lot of those times, it's just schist construction. Yes. I think he did show up as F.A. schist the first time, but I wasn't paying attention to that. Like, we had other things we were talking about. Yeah, like Wondar. Right. Whereas here, he is actually, like, behaving in a rather fascist way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think we're dense as fuck. <laughs> that, that, that is possible, too. Uh, so I do enjoy that we begin with, uh, sort of the Man-Thing greatest hits, having a battle with an alligator. Where he hits, he smacks him against a tree, because that's yep. how he usually does alligators. Pick it by yep. a tail, break a spine on a tree. Okay. I do like the, the panel at the top of page three, where you have the reflection of the gator in Man-Thing's eyes. Yes. That's a cool image. Yes. I, I do like that they also point out that his nose looks like a carrot. Because on page seven, uh, Rory's talking to Ruth, and it's like, I can't exactly describe it. It's maybe seven foot tall with a nose shaped like a carrot. Yep. Which is probably the most safe for publication description you could give. <laughs> oh, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> uh, and then there are bikers. Yeah. Yeah. We, the bikers have finally arrived in Man-Thing. If it's a 70s Marvel comic, eventually bikers will show up. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I'm really dreading this era when I get there with my Marvel read-through, where it's just going to be like, ah, oh, why is Conan fighting bikers? Right, right. <laughs> now, I, I do enjoy that for a brief moment, Man-Thing gets to pretend like he's Ghost Rider. Yes, he gets a chain. Swing, swinging that chain around. Like, ugh. <laughs> the way Snake dies is so silly. <laughs> His own chain just gets tossed, apparently with enough velocity, <laughs> that <laughs> he's instantly killed. And it's just like, it's not even like a glancing blow either. You see that hit, and it's just like, it's like a gunshot went off against his head or something. It is especially hilarious the way it is drawn, because you have the panel of Man-Thing just casually tossing it to the right, or to his left, to our right. And then the next panel has the chain sort of in the same place in the next shot. 
like headed toward uh, his head. Yes. And then you have the impact. <laughs> like it looks like he threw it from one panel to the other. Yes. And it really like the way to depict it on page 32, it's like a gunshot. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I am imagining that the back of his head that we cannot see has just exploded. Yes. And actually what sort of lends credence to that is that there is what I'm sure was supposed to be blood spatter behind his head on the next panel as he falls that's been colored black. Uh, trick we'll see again in, in Evil Dead. Yes, yes. Just, okay, yeah. It's, it's, it's gruesome, but it's, it's pretty funny. Because it's just the most casual toss, and it's just like, black! Like, okay! Yep. Dead biker! Because it's not even that Man-Thing is, like, angry at anybody, he's just, well, don't need this anymore. <laughs> also, like, Snake just gets it rough in this book, because when Man-Thing uses his burning touch on him, like... It's not even that, like, because normally it's like an acid burn, but no, his hand is literally on fire. Yep. Well, you know... In uh, page uh, page 17, like, he is holding onto his hand because it is in flames. Yeah, well, you know, big tough guys like that, they're really all about fear. They're using their own machismo and, mask- and machismo and uh, <laughs> all that stuff to master own insecurities and fears, and probably a small penis. <laughs> but... I, I will I will say that at least these bikers are not Nazis. Yeah, they're hippie. They're hippie bikers. Right. Right. Like they're they're easy rider types. Yeah. Like dealing drugs and making money riding cross country somehow. I do find it interesting that like Rory our Richard Rory gets more hippie as the issue goes on. Yeah. Yeah. He he's just a dude in glasses and his hair is kind of pulled back. And, of course, the crocodile gets rid of the glasses, and at first... And eventually, eventually he's going around shirtless. Yep. I kind of thought he, he was supposed to be Roy Thomas for a second there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, in those early panels, he kind of looks like him. Yes. <laughs> and he eats beans the way, same way Roy Thomas does, so... <laughs> I, will, I will take your word for that. <laughs> I have only ever seen Roy Thomas eat popcorn. <laughs> but this is just a fun issue like it's in some ways I in on first read I was a little disappointed because it reminds me far more of the earlier Adventures into Fear stories than where the book was an issue or two ago yes but the absolute I, wild batshitness of it yeah yeah well and, and we've, we've, uh, we've once again sort of moved away from the Jennifer Kale stuff back to just sort of the general goings-on of the swamp. But it's subtle. The way they do it is subtle. It is. Because and and the, the reemergence of Schist still reminds you that this is all one big universe. Yeah. And then we get Professor Slaughter. <laughs> like... I feel like once you earn a nickname like that, most professional organizations just don't want to have you anymore. Yes. And really, Rory himself is, is fun, too, because, like... His whole bad luck thing is really actually kind of fun, the way they do it. It is. Like, he spills his coffee and it angers an alligator. Yep. The doctor drops him the, the minute he's born. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the end of the issue, the bad luck is passed on to Snake. Yes. The absurdity of the issue is subtle, but it's... Once you realize it's there, it's like, oh man, this is actually a really funny issue. Yep. No, it, it's it's it is very much a slapstick comic. Yes, and, and that's kind of fun. It's sort of 
keeping in the the transition of tone and style that the man thing stories have been undergoing because initially they were very much horror stories and now we've moved into this sort of wackier zanier space where the character hasn't changed at all and the circumstances haven't changed at all but the tone has become much lighter much more about finding the fun in the situation rather than trying to make you scared oh yeah like these are horrific circumstances like, from another perspective, the death of Snake in this issue is horrific. Yes, yes. But it's also really funny. <laughs> but it, it's like the difference in running a campaign as Call of Cthulhu versus running it as Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, and why are you the one making that reference and not me? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, what I'm saying is you could run the same overall story in either system, but the tone would be totally different. Oh, yeah. And you run it in Savage Worlds, and now you've got a complete gonzo pulp adventure. Absolutely. Which I wouldn't be surprised if the story takes a turn toward that once uh, once things get running again. I'm for that. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I thought this was fun. Um, the art doesn't do a whole lot to make itself stand out. Like, it's fine, it's good, it's dynamic. But aside from a couple shots of the man thing, you know, it's just average Marvel art, you know? yeah. I mean, Val Myrick does his job here, which is fine. Yeah. It's not my favorite Man-Thing issue visually, but it, it's it's fine. He, he His style doesn't get in the way of the jokes. Like, the the he the visual humor is there. Yeah. It, it's fun. It's it's just a fun issue. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like I really needed this after the Vampire Tales issue. With that many stories, even if you have one that you really like... There's going to be some others that you like less. And so the the balance is just off. And so it's refreshing to be able to come to a singular full-length comic that tells one story that you enjoy as, as sort of a, a counterpoint to how all over the place a magazine can be. Or as the case of this magazine, a bunch of stories just kind of like, eh, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I liked the, the Satana story. Like, that one was good. Yeah. And and the Morbius one was okay. It was the best Morbius story, solo story, we've probably had so far. Yes. But again, like Ghost Rider, that's grading on a curve. True. And, like, I like the collection story, but, like you said, it's, it's fairly standard anthology fair. Yeah. So, again, it's just there's... Th- with the sheer number of pages, it's not enough for there to just be one or two solid stories. Yeah. You, you, you kind of feel like, wow, what, am I, what did I spend all this money on right the whole that whole dollar whereas man thing is consistent and entertaining in this issue from beginning to end absolutely and that's nice that's it, it's hopefully man thing under the the guidance of of steve gerber becomes one of those like tomb of dracula that we can just point to and say yeah that's always going to be solid yeah but i think that the thing that man thing has that maybe tomb of dracula doesn't have is that kind of Oh God! They did that. <laughs> yeah, th- there, there is a, there is a. Again, I used the word zany. Like it's, it's sort of a cartoon quality that, in terms of what they're getting away with in tone and story, that something like Dracula really can't because that that story has to have a certain level of sincerity gravitas. and seriousness and gravitas. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I honestly think that people would get fairly upset if someone tried to pull the stuff that Gerber is pulling off here in a Dracula story. Well, Roy Thomas would get upset. True, true. But, that said, 
I would kind of love to see a crossover between Tomb of Dracula and Man-Thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, but then Dracula has to go to Florida. <laughs> and nobody I wouldn't wish that on... Yeah, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. <laughs> once you get beyond Disney World, it's just like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, once, once Universal's epic universe opens, Dracula will be in Florida. <laughs> anyway... I think that wraps up the Man-Thing comic. Which means, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of another... Oh, except, except, oh, before, before we do that, I just noticed the, the last panel of, of the Man-Thing comic. Next, the Fool Killer cometh. Of course which, he does. Which I think is the debut of Fool Killer. Okay. Yeah, the first appearance of one of the versions of Fool Killer is in Man-Thing number three. Which, Fool Killer is a character that's had a fairly long life in Marvel, uh, going all the way up to recently having been on a Deadpool team, I think. He kills Gene DeWolf, right? Uh, probably. Okay. There have been like three or four Fool Killers, though, so... Yeah, it's probably not the same Fool Killer. But, anyway, I, I, just, I just noticed that we are actually approaching a, a fairly notable debut in the Marvel Universe. Notable being in very large quotation marks here. I mean, it, the debut of a character that has continued to exist in one form or another up to the present. There we go. Um, and like three of the four versions were created by Steve Gerber. Okay. Yeah, I'm good with that then. So, you know. Anyway, but yes, so we are we are now wrapped up on men. Okay. So can I tell them what we're covering next time please, now? Please do. I'm curious to find out. Oh, I thought I'd run this by you, but okay. <laughs> Up next on Tomb of Ideas, we're going to be talking about Strange Tales number 172, returning to Brother Voodoo, Werewolf by Night number 14, and yet another magazine with Monsters Unleashed number 4. Now, we did talk about that one. I think where we landed is that chances are we're just going to be covering the Frankenstein content in that issue. Probably. Because otherwise, that's going to be a really long episode. Yeah. And, you know, if you guys like really long episodes, please let us know. You can contact us at our email address, tombofideas at gmail.com, our Twitter, at tombofideas, or Facebook page, facebook.com slash tombofideas. And, of course, you can find our back catalog Wherever you get your podcasts, whether that is Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, we are also located at Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X. We are proud members of the Cinepunks podcast group, alongside other great shows such as Horror Business, uh, The Main Cinepunks Show, Wine and Cheese, Black Sun Dispatches. I could go on and on. There are lots of great shows that we are affiliated with. Please, wherever you find our show, check them out too. Give them a listen. I think you'll enjoy it. And also on the Cinepunk site, you'll find, in addition to all of our episodes and the other shows, you will find some really great articles on pop culture, television, music, movies, whatever you're interested in. Chances are someone there is writing about it. So give it a look, give it a listen, and please let us know what you think. Yeah. Um, speaking of letting us know what you think, we did have some listener feedback. Ooh. From a friend of the show, Chad Jernigan, uh, talking about that Fear Number 20 issue of Morbius. Uh, Chad writes, The Morbius side of this is pretty typical. Morbius loses control and takes out an innocent in a blood rage, regains sanity, and sleeps. In his dreams, he recounts all the other victims. 
Dude wakes up. Somebody tries to manip manipulate him to their own ends until he offs them. It's got to be a continued formula, but we apparently sh shouted for it in 1973. A lot of the panels really show off how incredibly buff Michael is post being turned. I enjoyed the image of Morbius looking absolutely pissed that he gacked Krauss, a righteous man and scientist. The Wax Museum story was alright. Kenyon looked like he had the emotional spectrum of a dummy, constantly giving the same flat effect as anything the same flat effect at everything short of a concussion. It was intriguing, but kind of lacked depth to hook me in. Which I guess refers to that backup story that I did not read. Right. Yeah. It, I. Yeah. It, like I say, it's it's it is what it is. It's an old fifties story, I think, that got reprinted. But he talks about the formula for the Michael Morbius stories, and I guess we are starting to see a formula develop here. Yeah, and I think that's probably going to be true, at least for the color stories of following this pattern of Morbius trying to find a cure, something gets in his way, he has to fight that something, whether it's monster or mad scientist or whatever. This thing gets hurt in the process. Right. And 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 Morbius mopes and, and feels guilty about it. Yeah. And and I don't know if that formula will be in the magazines, because so far it hasn't. At least not really. Well, he killed the ca cab driver talking about Watergate. Right. But, but I mean, in terms of the, like, the search for a cure being the driving factor, that hasn't really been true in the comic, in, in the, the black and white match. True. Uh, but, but I could see where that would be the ongoing concern of the color comic, because that, more than anything else, would follow from the Spider-Man appearances. Yes. So, Chad, thank you so much for writing in. We really appreciate it. Uh, like I said before, if you want to be a cool guy like Chad... You can always contact us and send something in. We love hearing from you. Also, please, if you're listening to us, make sure you uh, rate us and leave a review. That really helps with uh, pushing us up in the various podcasting algorithms, and it makes sure that other people see that we exist. True. True. Anyway, I think that does do it for another thrilling episode of Tomb of Ideas. Unless you've got anything else, Trey. No, I think that that's all I've got. I am looking forward to that next episode. Nothing else because I am excited for another installment of Brother Voodoo. Yeah, see if it continues to hold up as it has been doing. We we've really been enjoying that title. Yeah. So, um until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Hicks.